leadership team. We uh, began some weeks ago a study through Malachi, and um, so we're going to pick that up this morning. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Um, it's considered a minor prophet. Uh, minor not is in the sense of minor league, um, but minor in the sense of size of the book. It's one of the smaller uh, prophetic books, and so those get labeled as minor prophets. And so we're going to pick it up here in chapter 3, verse 7 through 15. And um, kind of just by way of reminder, the aim of Malachi. It's to restore to the Jews and us a fresh relationship with God by indicating the, the precise cause of their lack of passion and ours as well. It's really a call to passionate spirituality is what Malachi is. So I want to be reading verse 7 through 15. You'd follow along and then we'll pray and ask God to teach us. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. But your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge, and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they will also test God. And escape. Let's pray. Our Father, I think my brothers and sisters would agree <clears throat> that as we've gone through this book of Malachi, we've discovered how relevant it is. You've spoken to our life already about our values, about our marriages, about so many different things that we deal with day in and day out. This morning's no different. As you talk to us about something that we deal with every single day, and Lord, if we were honest, you deal with something that's really hard to let go. But Spirit of God, I pray that you'd invite us this morning to engage with you. That you would do a deep work in our hearts. That we become more like you. And we know it's only possible by the power of Jesus Christ. So it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. My wife, uh, Cindy, is Dutch. Thus, that makes her an expert. And maybe this story will explain. There were three men who were hungry. They went out to lunch together. An Englishman and an Irishman and a Dutchman. And each of them ordered this bowl of soup. And as the soup was delivered to their table, there were three hungry flies cruising above each one of them. These flies saw the soup and they dove in. 
into these warm bowls, one into each bowl. The Englishman took his teaspoon, removed the fly, placed it in a glass ashtray, and covered it with his napkin because English like to do things with class. The Irishman, he picked up the bowl and blew the fly out in half the soup as well. Not sure what that tells us about the Irish. But the Dutchman saw the fly in the soup and he got mad. And he grabbed the fly by the wings and shook it and said, there, spit it all out, every single drop. <laughs> oh, the Dutchman. <laughs> I think you'll agree they had a different approach, um, but one approached it a little bit more fervently than the others, you could say. And uh, the topic this morning is how to approach this thing called finances the way God would want us to. Topic this morning, really, if we were to be honest, could sap passion quickly in our life if we don't handle it the way God wants. Now, I have no desire to guilt anyone, but I have a sincere desire that you and I would be released from bondage of closed hands because those only result in closed hearts. And throughout the Bible, God seems to use our attitude towards finances to take our spiritual temperature. And let's be honest, it is a reliable gauge, isn't it? And the reason God uses money and finances as a measure of spiritual health is simple. It's usually the last thing that gets committed to him. And he seems to know that sanctified wallets would be a key step in our growing towards him. In Malachi, we see God's people neglecting God and the honor due him. And the proof is seen in that they did not use their material resources that he had given them to honor him. And there's some principles that we find in these verses that are so helpful to you and I if we were to see and approach finances and resources the way God would want us to. The first principle is that carnality really is at the root of all financial mismanagement. Verse 7 is God's invitation, first of all, is to return to him. It's this idea of repentance. Repent. Come back to me. Begin to care about the things of my heart more than you do about your bank accounts. And it's met with a cynical response. They say, how shall we return? What are you talking about? And in verse 8, God's met question is meant to shake them up. Will a man rob God? It's the question on the table. And I'm sure it stunned them because it wasn't really the topic. They, were, they weren't even expecting a topic. They just said, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Important question. I'm sure they're thinking, well, no way. Well, then you're robbing me. How's that for an indictment? Shooting it straight. And he says, you're robbing me. And they say, well, how? In tithes and offerings. Now, a tithe means tenth. It referred to the tenth of the people's produce or income that was owed to God for temple service ministry. This tithe was to be a testimony to, and it was to be a recognition of God's ownership of everything. And so when they had a, uh, the harvest and they had all their produce together, they'd take a 10%, give it to God, and they were acknowledging, God, this is actually yours. You provided this, and so we're going to worship you. And honor you. And so they gave a tithe. The tithe was required of every Israelite. It was a way again of demonstrating the recognition of God as the originator and the source of all they had. And this idea of robbing God says, you've robbed me. 
It presents us with a biblical view of finances. It's not only taking, robbing what's not yours, but it also is withholding or holding back what belongs to somebody else. God says, you've robbed me. Oh, about you, that's kind of a, makes you want to duck a little bit, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to say, well, I said a bad word against God, but when he says, you've robbed me, you kind of want to duck. That's pretty nasty. And God's telling them the truth, you've robbed me. And the whole issue deals with this thing called tithes and offerings. Now, the biblical impl- implication is important. The income you and I take, that take in, it's not ours. It's not yours. You might think it is. It's not yours. God says it's mine. And the Bible teaches this principle of stewardship. And stewardship is managing what does not belong to us. We're managing God's resources. Now, if we were to be honest, there's various views, I guess you could say, of theology or stewardship or finances. There's this idea of poverty theology. In other words, the non-materialistic, there's a disdain for possessions. In a word, possessions are a curse. They're the lowest quality. People think you don't have needs. Their primary role seems to be one of rejecter. Their attitude's carefree. Then there's this prosperity theology. What a dangerous teaching this has been in the church. That prosperity is really the reward of the righteous. They deserve it. In a word, in their mind, possessions are a reward. And they view purchases as top of the line. Top quality. After all, that's what God would want us to have. Those in prosperity theology teach. Needs are met by seed faith. You give to get. And you get more if you have a greater level of faith, prosperity theology would teach us. The primary owner in prosperity theology is the owner. It's the person. We own it, according to this theology. And the attitude is one of driven. It seems to be a focus is to accomplish... Uh, accumulate more because it's a sign of spirituality. Then uh, there's probably what you could call common practice theology. It's the pursuit of household possessions and family pleasures that's acceptable. In a word, possessions here become a right. It's not so much quality as it is quantity in this theology. Needs are met by often credit and borrowing. The primary role here of common practice theology of one of accumulator. And the attitude is one of being entangled. That's not what the Bible puts forth, any of those three. The Bible puts forth a stewardship theology. That possessions are a trust given by God in varying proportions. It's a privilege. Possessions become a privilege, not a right, not a reward or curse. They're a privilege. This theology views purchases more in the idea of what's the wisest purchase. Not what's top quality, not quantity, but what's the wisest. Needs are met by faithfully using and giving what you've received. The primary role here is not of rejecter, not one of owner, not one of accumulator, but it's one of steward or managing. And the attitude is being faithful. And so there's a distinct difference in a theology of how to approach this it seems throughout the world we face. And maybe you, you've adapted one of these this morning, and this might be kind of challenging to you. But stewardship theology is what the Bible puts forth. The people in Malachi's day weren't being good stewards. They were robbing God. 
And the biblical view of money is that 100% of it is God's. And he's generous enough to let us keep most of it. But he says, I want you to honor me with 10%. Every time you put money in the offering plate, it's to be an act of worship. That's why we do our offering in the context of the worship service, because it is an act of worship. You're acknowledging God as the owner. You're acknowledging that God has given and entrusted to you all that you have. And you worship him by giving. This is the principle that's to govern all our giving. Again, the tithe was required because God wanted the people of Israel to understand he owned it all and to express their attitude by giving back a tenth of what he gave them. Not to tithe was tantamount to embezzlement from God. But the tithe was also a minimum the people of Israel were expected to give. You see, over and above the tithe were these things called offerings. They were just generous giving towards needs. Generous towards giving towards God-appointed opportunities. It was above the tithe. It wasn't to replace it. The tithe was required, but the offerings were optional. And the amount of the tithe was fixed. We often think in terms of tithing as, well, we'll give God a couple, one or two percent, but the Bible teaches really the basement, the floor of tithing is 10 percent, not the, not the ceiling. It was the floor is 10 percent. And God says, when you give that 10 percent, you're honor, honoring me. And the offerings were a way of saying to God, I don't want to be limited to the minimum I can give to you. The offerings went beyond it. Instead, I want to bless other people. I want to help somebody. I want to be a blessing to them. I want to show how much I value you, God, by helping meet these needs. Many today dismiss this idea of tithing. They say, well, that was in the law under Moses. We're no longer under the law. But they fail to realize that tithing was predated, even the law. If you go back all the way back to uh, Genesis, you find this out. Genesis 14. And so tithing predates the law by hundreds of years, and the author of Hebrews recognized that tithe was to uh, continually be practiced. The New Testament church was instructed by the Apostle Paul as to the necessity of regularly and proportionately setting aside a support for the ongoing work of the Lord. Matter of fact, he even mentions on the first day of the week, take a collection. It was to be a regular part of their giving, regular part of their worship. And those who don't tithe, they either don't know, or they've sunk into carnality and begin to adopt the philosophy of the world. And when it comes down to it, really, it's whether you and I will line up our thinking with God or with the world system. You see, it seems God's value system is 180 degrees out of sync with the world system. Not just in this idea, but in a whole lot of other things as, we've learned, as we are learning through Malachi and through all the Bible. Because the reality is money's not the problem. Resources are not the problem. The underlying value of all is how we view it and how we value resources. You see, God sees things much differently than we do. Sees it much differently than our culture does. We have to continually test ourselves as to whose definition, whose value system we're going to live by. Whose value system we're going to use. You see, accumulation of things, I think God realized, doesn't bring satisfaction. I think the wisdom of God comes out here. It seems the more, uh, more I interact with people, those who seek to accumulate more and more and more, 
they realize the older they get that it hasn't satisfied them. They, they might have a lot of stuff, but they don't have the things that really matter and last, like peace or joy. Because they find that things don't last. Things fade, they quit working, they don't last. Some of us were happier when you were poor, when you didn't have anything. Maybe God wants to remind you of that. The stuff hasn't pulled, hasn't done it. It hasn't come through for you. Just like idolatry. God knows that all those other things will let you down. God says, I'll never let you down. So don't depend on those things. Because carnality is the root of all financial mismanagement. And the people of Malachi's day had a wrong view of money, which resulted in a wrong value placed upon it. And the result was a curse. A loss of money, a loss of resource, a loss of blessing. God doesn't want you and I deceived. He wants us to see things as they rightly are. Now, if you go to Proverbs 23, 4 through 5, I want you to picture, if you can, in your mind, this might be a stretch, a five, ten dollar bill, one dollar bill, fifty dollar bill with wings on it. Listen to what Proverbs says, 23, 4 through 5. Okay, you got your weird picture? Okay. Do not weary yourselves to gain wealth, to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Because when you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Money's just wave it goodbye. It's not going to last. God, I think, calls us to a higher way of living. He wants us on the front end to realize from Proverbs and Malachi that the way we handle our finances is significant. The way we view it is significant. It's carnal viewpoint that gets us often in trouble. We mismanage our finances because we don't see it God's way. But there's another principle out of Malachi that emerges, and that spirituality is the reason for financial obedience. You could say financial obedience, one of the byproducts of it, is we begin to live passionately for God. Because we got the proper perspective on it. If you look at verse 10 through 12 of Malachi 3, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, that I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. You see, some had withheld their tithe due to their love of possessions. There was this fear coming in their life and ours of unexpected expenses or debt. For whatever reason, their hands were closed. And when our hands are closed, it always thwarts our spiritual growth. And God's plan for finances is to live with open hands. And when we live with open hands, we say something like, Lord, we trust you. We know that a financial calculator, it could show us how much future value we're giving away by not putting this money into our own investments. But we sincerely believe your word when it promises you will give to us as we give to others. And that our best investment is treasures in heaven. And just as honoring the marriage covenant affects us spiritually, so does honoring God's resources. Now note in verse 9 the effect this was having. It seems almost a ripple effect. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation. It's almost like it had a ripple effect. That God condemned the whole nation suggests that the robbery was a rather widespread abuse 
of his generosity. It was a collective robbery, you could say. It was a collective cursing. He says, you'll be cursed with a curse. In other words, I believe when God's not honored by the way we handle his resources he gives us, it will, he will allow needs to come into our lives, maybe into our churches or communities that he will not meet. But you may say, hey, whoa, wait a minute. What about Philippians 4.19? God will meet all our needs according to his riches and glory. Is that a promise? Yes. But that's, that's set in the context of being generous and giving. That's the context of that verse. They were cursed with a curse. What does that look like? Maybe practically speaking, since Jordan's here, I get to use him in a sermon illustration so I don't talk about his back. One day we were ripping down our, an old porch we had. And we actually have a picture of everybody pulling, and there's Jordan sitting down watching. And uh, it's interesting, because what was happening is Jordan was pulling at a rope. We were kind of lifting and pushing and everything. And as Jordan went backward, he tripped and fell. And, I, and I'm watching as I'm pushing this, this addition coming like it's about to land on Jordan. And so Jordan was indeed watching it <laughs> as it came towards him. Thank God it missed him, um, but it could have nailed him. And, uh, and, and that would have been horrible as it landed on him. And, and it got me thinking about this curse. Because when we mishandle God's finances, he'll cause things to start falling apart. God doesn't want things falling on you. He doesn't want those structures you've placed to become a harm. He wants you to learn to handle them yourself. But if you're not willing to align yourself with what God wants, don't be surprised if things start falling apart and landing on you. I think that's what he's saying to these people. Your lives are falling apart. Things aren't going your way because you've not honored me. Indeed, you've robbed me. It speaks to this idea of a lack of spirituality. And look at this attitude in verse 15. This amazes me. So now we call the arrogant blessed. I'm sorry, verse 14. You have said it is vain to serve God. And what they're saying is, what's the purpose of serving God? We don't have any money coming in. Our land's not producing like it should. Why would we serve God? Boy, that's kind of a scary, I wonder if we've ever said that. God, it doesn't seem like life's working. It doesn't seem like you're giving the money I want. Or I became a Christian and things aren't rosy. I don't have the resources I need or to think I need. I don't have this, this, and this. God, why follow you? Why serve you if it's not to my benefit? And God says, hey, this isn't about you. This is about me. This is about honoring me. And until you honor me, don't be surprised if your additions start falling on you, if your life starts falling apart. Now, in the midst of this indictment, there's a challenge and there's a promise. Now, if you look at verse 10, there's this whole idea of storehouses. By way of context, the storehouses really served three purposes back then. They provided food for the priests who oversaw the temple and the ministry and the responsibilities for maintaining the spiritual lives of the people. It also fed widows and orphans. The storehouse also met the needs of the poor who were living in their society. Thus, the storehouses really had a social function which was tied to their spiritual foundation. It not only benefited the Jews, but if you look at verse 12, it benefited the broader community as well. Verse 12 says, All the nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land. In other words, it would affect other nations. They would have an, an expanding impact, which, by the way, the church is supposed to have, this idea of an expanding impact all the way to when Jesus comes. 
And thus the storehouses had a significant function. It was tied to their spirituality and their financial obedience. And likewise, we're to bring the tithe to the place of ministry and service called the local church. And I believe God wants to use us as a pipeline for distribution of his blessing, not a repository for them where we hoard them. And it happens when we obey him. The end of verse 10 is interesting. God offers his people. He challenges them. He says, I want you to test me. You see, by this offer, he virtually guaranteed them a direct and abundant return on their investment. But the challenge isn't only about the tithe. It's about applying God's financial principles. I think God says, I'm going to bless you, but it's not just really the tithe. It's this whole idea of how to handle my resources. Because the reality is, we could tithe and then go charge ourselves into bankruptcy. You think that honors God? No. The whole issue here is handling God's money in a way which pleases God. And God says, when you do that, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to pour out my blessing on you. Because you're doing it for me. And then the whole thing is it's a spiritual matter, how we handle God's resources. Will God bless you by the way you're handling his resources right now? Verse 10, the end of verse, he says, until it overflows. I thought that was an interesting phrase. I will bless you until it overflows. What does that mean? I mean, what's God trying to say right there? When is that? When is it that it's overflowed? How do we know? I think, first of all, when our needs are met. We, we can say when our needs are met that God's has overflowed towards us, blessing. I think we can say it overflows when God has blessed us to the limit of our ability to manage it. And God doesn't want us to mismanage it, and so he knows us well enough to say, I'm going to overflow my blessing to the point, to the degree that you can manage it. And I also believe he overflows his blessing to the limit that our character could be better formed. The reality is some of you couldn't handle more. It might grab you too much. It might sink you. It might create in you more greed. And so God's giving you and will give you what you need. What will form in you the character of more Christ-likeness. God will give you what you can handle managing it. And so don't, don't whine or don't wish you had more. Thank God for what you have because now you can cre be created and form more into the image of Christ. You can manage what he has entrusted to you. I think God entrusts more resources into people's hands because he knows they can handle it. That they can manage it appropriately. And verse 11 seems to imply that the curse of Israel was experienced was really at this point an agricultural failure. It was their livelihood. The ground failed. People were robbing God, and they thought they had to keep all the crops for themselves because their crops were not producing much. Doesn't that speak to us today? We better keep this because it doesn't seem like our land is producing. Or maybe next year our land won't produce. So we better kind of keep it saved up just in case. God says, you don't understand something. You don't know why the ground is not producing. It's under my curse because you're robbing me. And if you keep on robbing me, because you're short, guess what's going to happen to your ground? <laughs> it won't produce the way that will provide for you. 
And that, that really resonates, and that really speaks to us, because we would say, well, I don't make much money, and every nickel I need, and my ground isn't producing. So I can't afford to give. God says, you don't understand. That's why your ground's not producing. It's because you're not honoring me. God takes this whole idea of honoring him with the resources he's entrusted to us very seriously. But God gave me this house. God gave me these things. He expects me to pay for it. Yes, but he doesn't expect you to rob him to do it. God says, you honor me. And when you obey me with what I've entrusted to you, you're going to grow. You're going to grow towards me. You're going to become a healthier Christian. And sure, it might not be what you had hoped. You might not get everything you want, but that's not really the goal now, is it? The goal is to honor God with all that he's entrusted to us. You see, God's concerned about our hearts. And he knows if we have open hands, we'll have open hearts. And God blesses that. There's a third principle here, that prosperity is a result of financial freedom. You see, God has a plan for finances, and it works. It's based on his value system. It encompasses a wise plan. Giving. Savings. Proverbs even talks about investing. It certainly talks about pursuing debt-free living, which also, as you know, will help us to not live with so much worry in our life. Our mathematics, however, can become all messed up. We think we've saved up by not giving, but God's economy is the other way around. You see, you need, we're called to give. We're not called to raise our standard of living, but our standard of giving. That's what, he, that's what God calls us to. It's a higher way of life. Now, this word prosper can trip us up at times. The form of this word is used over 80 times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the most common usage of it is a Hebrew word called, called salak. And it means to advance, to make progress, to succeed, and to be profitable. And unfortunately, we've taken the word prosper to mean to, to get rich. And God says, no, it's this idea of advancing. It's this idea of progressing. And when you progress in financial obedience, when you progress in honoring me, that's prosperity. Not an accumulation of things. God says you can have all the things in the world and not be prosperous because you're not progressing. And you're not honoring me in this way. It's not about getting rich. You see, God wants us to have successful journey through life, to progress financially out of debt, to progress, to progress and advance in giving and saving where it's appropriate. You see, making progress is prosperity in the context of Scripture. Do you want to progress in your finances is the question. I mean, as you sit here now, I don't know where you're at, but do you want to progress? Do you want to advance? Do you want to prosper the way God defines it? If so, there's four D's I'd like to present you with that might help you. I believe will help you. One, develop a biblical view on finances. And it's got to start here. All that you have is God's. It's not yours. It all belongs to him. That car you have, it's not your car. You're driving God's car. I suggest you take care of it. It's his. That house you live in, thank God it's his, it's his house. All that you have is God's. 
And, and we can't handle finances until that is a key deep conviction in our life. Develop a biblical view on finances. Matthew 6.24 really, I think, hits, hits it on the head. God's got a way of shooting us straight. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. You say, what do you mean I can't have wealth? No, notice, look at the verse. You can't serve wealth and serve God at the same time. God says, that's, that's not how it works. That's, that's a demonstration your heart's not right. It's idolatry, it's greed, it's a whole lot of other sins when we serve wealth. Biblical view on finances is we don't serve wealth, we serve God because it's his, all of it. The second principle that will help us progress is don't rob God. God expects, expects us to honor him with the minimum tithe of 10%. And for some of you, this might be a huge step of faith. You're like, man, I look at, I look at the list of debts and this just doesn't line up. God says, I, I get it, but don't rob me. That first 10%, that goes, that goes to him. You budget off the, the other 90. That first 10 is God's. You honor him with that. And he'll respond to that. He'll respond to you honoring him in your financial obedience. Encourage, prayer. Above that, to use whatever portion he designates. He might lead you to give in certain ways. Support a missionary. Support a ministry endeavor. Above and beyond that, just be sensitive to where he leads you. Don't rob God. The third thing, direct the flow of resources God brings in towards spirit-confirmed opportunities. As God lays a need on your heart, as he directs you, direct the flow of his resources towards God-led opportunities. It means you and I need to be praying about where God wants his money and his resources. We need to be praying that God can bless somebody else through us. And that we'd be sensitive and live with open hands so God would lead it where he wants, not clenching it, not fighting it. As someone once said, it really hurts when God has to pry our hands open. It's going to hurt. But, but he means, he's serious about this. And so direct the flow of resources God brings in towards spirit-confirmed opportunities. When's the last time you gave just solely to bless? No other reason. When's the last time you gave where actually, to be honest, it didn't make sense? It's the last 50 in your wallet. Last five. You're like, man, I, okay, God, I'm going to give. I'm going to do it. Are your hands open? How have you responded when God takes it away? Do you still honor him? Do you still worship him? Do you still seek to handle his resources? Or do you do like the people in Malachi's day and say, following you is no benefit, there's no profit to it. How have you responded when he takes it away? You see, we can't take it with us. I've never seen a Hertz pulling a U-Haul. We can't take it with us. But we can send it on ahead by investing in eternity. And so invest in eternity now. It's the best time to do it. And the fourth one is do seek to learn more and apply God's principles about finances in his word. Especially maybe you want to start reading in Proverbs and jotting down where it addresses us. If you have a concordance in the back of your Bible, oftentimes you can find a word and do a word study like on money or finances. 
and, and do a word study on it. And it'll lead you verse to verse to verse. We have several people, I guess you could call them financial experts, in our church. And if right now your finances, you would be considered, you'd consider them a mess. Or seems like it's getting out of control. And maybe the debt's piling up and you're not sure, you're ready to throw your hands up. Come see me, I will direct you to them. I, they would love to sit down and help you. And have, some have verbally said to me, man, if, if you see anybody in the body who needs help, I'd love to sit down with them. And they'll help you. Develop a plan to work your way to progress, to advance in this thing called honoring God with finances. Don't put it off. We sang that song. It's, it's one of my favorite that Jordan leads called I Am Free. God wants you free. He doesn't want you in bondage to all the attachments of this world. He wants you to honor him with finances and to be free from those. That's why it's important we follow his plan so we can live in freedom. Stop the downslide to bondage. Give God first. Ask him how he wants you to handle his resources. And continually learn more and more about what the blueprint he's laid out for you and I. Because open hands lead to open hearts. And that's really a habit of passionate people. And so if you want to live a passionate Christian life, if that's your pursuit, live with open hands. Let's pray. Our Father, my request is on behalf of my brothers and sisters who find themselves in the cold, dark valley of debt. And they look up and they know it's a long way out. And they might even this morning feel like they can't talk to anybody. God, please, might you make these ones courageous enough to seek help? to take seriously these matters. Might they be reminded that they matter to you, that you want to help them every step of the way. God, for many here who seem to be allured and maybe tempted by the onslaught of enslaving views of our culture, God, please give us the discipline and, yes, courage to embrace your view and to submit to your plan. Lord, for those who might be more affluent, might you remind them of your desire to bless through them. God, might you protect them from pride, that they might be equally eager to grow in this area as well. And I know, God, this isn't easy. It's such a tangible thing, and things are ever before us day, every single day. And our culture tells us to get more and to get the best and to get it now. It accommodates that mindset. So, God, what I'm asking is by your Spirit, give each of us open hands and open hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.